0: I was going to jump into the specific churches starting today, but I have been encouraged by at least three people to continue on with the set of notes that I was working from last week, so I'm going to finish that. Um, And I will tell you this right now, the challenge that I think, I don't know about Rick, but the challenge that I'm going to face right now teaching this is because it is a reciprocal or a... recapitulation or a circular vision that happens throughout Revelation, it's hard to teach one passage of Scripture without teaching half the book and teaching half the Old Testament um, because everything in the, in the book of Revelation actually goes back and has to, you know what really drives me crazy, and I was thinking about this when I was reading some of the books, is that they said, and John chose this because it, and John, and I'm like, John didn't choose nothing you know, I just, guys, when you read commentaries, be aware of that kind of stuff, because they all of a sudden puts at the feet of the author that it was his choice. And those of us that are, um, yeah, <laughs> that, um, understand that the, the scripture is the writing of God himself. So, as he inspires individuals, so, what, what are you waving at me for? All right, so I want to jump in with a brief overview. Um, I am struck throughout as I read, and I may get on a soapbox here this morning, and I actually am okay with that. I'm actually struck with the notion of the theme throughout the book of Revelation of the idea of overcoming by the word of their testimony. Um. And I talked last week about why John starts with addressing his uh, apocalyptic epistle to seven churches. And why a lot of people, when they read Revelation, like to kind of just gloss over really fast chapters two and three to get to the good stuff, which is, you know, the beasts and the weird locusts and all of that other stuff, and as a matter of fact, it's the idea of the continuity of of the churches with the 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 visions afterwards and the prelude to Revelation is to the naked eye a very choppy thing, and it has sparked many commentators to believe and to actually say that Revelation is a compilation of many of John's writings that guys got together and put together and that there's really no continuity. And so um, they will take the prelude out and then they'll take the seven churches out as being kind of an addendum or an add-in written at a later time or an earlier time and then they'll take the visions at the back of the book as being another set of of, uh, writings that he did over a long period of time we really don't know how long it took John to write this. Um, could, Yeah, it could have been 27 minutes. Uh, but it could have been over a span of a week. Could have been, you know, a couple of days. I, who, who knows? But the idea is, is that because we don't see continuity between... Chapters 1 with chapters 2, 3, and then chapters 2 and 3 as being the springboard into the visions, which demonstrates what it is in God's mind that has import. The visions, the beast, the false prophet, All of these things that that are brought up in John are not the first and primary concern of God. Why is that true? And this is a revelation question because it has to do with what the theme of revelation is. Why is it true that that is of secondary consequence to God in His revelation? Because the conquest of those is a given. What his primary condition, concern is, is not concern, but his primary message is through the book is that the church overcome. That is his primary concern. So he takes the first part of the book and he addresses it to his bride with the encouragement that they overcome. I'm going to tell you what the end looks like. Fear not, I have overcome. And I'm going to give you encouragement. But in order for you to overcome, I'm going to tell you the various things that you need to work on. And And, and when we go through it, I could probably do a breakout of all seven churches in one teaching because it's just an idea. We have this, we have this, we have this. This is the church universal. And so these are the things that we, we, we need to... T- you know, to take a look at. Now, there's one church very specifically that we'll take some time on, and that's the Church of Philadelphia, because it does have to do with testimony. It does have to do with the word of their testimony. And that is what the book of Revelation is all about. It's enduring by the word of your testimony, but first, by what? Blood of the Lamb. And the word of your testimony. And what does John Revelation 1 say of Jesus? He is what? The faithful. The faithful true witness. So it is him. That we declare. It's not our words that will cause us to overcome. It's what our words are about. But is that's how we overcome. So. When Jesus is talking to the seven churches, he's encouraging and He's saying, hey, look, I'm about to show you a whole bunch of stuff that you're going to be contending with. But to him who overcomes, I will give these things. And then you jump ahead to Revelation 12:11. What does it say? And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So this theme of overcoming, this theme of Maintaining truth. This theme of purity, of 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 maintaining your witness through a dark season, being a light in this dark beast's society, is the theme of Revelation. So Jesus takes some time to. Uh, oh, he he purposely speaks of the churches. The first vision John sees is. Christ among the lampstands. And there's a mystery that's involved there that I want to touch on today um, that I think will be an encouragement to all of us uh, when we get to it. But again, I want to draw this out so you guys can know so that where we're coming from. So if you had a picture of the temple, right? Um, uh, throw this away. Let's see. Hopefully one of these will work. Number three. Uh, this looks like it might work a little bit. All right, so, what do you have? You have it? Okay, that one doesn't work. Thanks. I'll use blue. You guys like blue? I'm using blue today. So you have the tabernacle, right? So the tabernacle was roughly like this. And here was the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. This was the curtain. I'll put a double line here. This is the curtain that was rent when Christ was born, I was crucified. Here you had the table of presents, showbread, show right? Over here you had what? Right. And it's one lamp with curving arms, right? To make a total of seven. And it was... Its job was what? What was its job? To shine eternally on the presence or on the bread, on the show bread, which is, we talked about it last week, the body of Christ. There's also, which is very interesting, right here before the curtain, what's this? The altar of incense, which is the prayers of the saints, which is very cool, and then As you come in, you have two things out here. What do you have? You have the altar, burnt offering, and then you have the bronze laver for washing. So by Christ's crucifixion, you are washed in pure water to enter the tabernacle into the presence where you have peace with God, which is represented by this, and where... The church, this is represented by Jesus Christ, where the church, which is the lampstand according to Revelation, continually illuminates or bears witness to the person of Jesus Christ, okay? So that's the way the temple is set up. And we talked about when, uh, when Jesus died, this was broken, this was torn, and so the actual presence of God is um, now broken out. So, um, so this is the, the picture that we have. This is the picture uh, that, that is referred to, that John understands. However, when John saw the, the, the vision in, in, in Revelation chapter 1, at the end of Revelation chapter 1, what did he see? Did he see this? Just jump right in there. No, there you go. What did he see? Seven lampstands. He didn't see one. Now, remember the menorah, which was in in the tabernacle, was like this. Right? Okay. One lamp with seven, one lampstand with seven lights on it. Represents Israel, one nation. Now we see Jesus. I'm going to just do it like this because I'm not going to try to draw Jesus. Son of man. I I know. (laughs) I'm not going to try to draw him like John saw him. (laughs) We see this. Okay, So instead of John seeing this, what he sees is he sees one like the Son of Man standing among the lampstands. And this is a picture that you'll see throughout the book of Revelation of the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes being joined together. So this is a picture of Jesus standing in the perfected church. The fullness of the church. This was Israel. This is what they saw. This, this vision here for John became this. Okay? Because now the singularity of the original vision just being about Israel has now reached its fullness and is the church. Does that make sense? All right. Um, any questions on this? Any questions about where we've gone so far? Yes, Josh. You're saying that he didn't see a menorah, he saw seven individual yeah. lampstands? Yeah. So they, okay. so they are individual in John's vision. And this is, this is pretty important because it actually takes the Old Testament concept of one nation and breaks it out into seven, which we've talked about as being the number of what? Fullness, perfection, essentiality. So what we have here is the actual promise made to Abraham right here. Okay? Uh, question here. Yeah. Those seven uh, lampstands that he sees? Yeah. Does each one have seven? No. Uh, where does it say that? It, it doesn't. It says it's a single lampstand. And the word is different. It's uh, luxia. This is menorah. This is luxia, which means a lamp. So they are lit, lit by a, a, a lamp. Well, so no, we don't know that that's not what he saw, because he didn't describe these as big. But what he said was he saw seven lamps, each, the The implication by his greeting from the seven spirits is that each lamp is lit by one, of the by the Holy Spirit, or by the fullness of the Spirit. So you have seven lamps, instead of having seven here on one lampstand, what John sees is seven individual lampstands, each lit by one. By one. Well, I was going to say that uh, if there were menorahs, each lampstand having seven candles, that's seven squared. So if you have the word, if seven is perfection, yeah. by squaring it, seven times seven, it's yeah. even implica- implicating the uh, unsurpassed uh, perfection that it yeah. represents. What I have to do is on this, I have to stick with the basic understanding of the syntax of the words. Um, the basic understanding by across the board by most people that comment on this is that these are single lamps, that these are not seven. And that's done because of the word that's used there, luxia, um, lu- I'm sorry, it's lu- luchnaya is how you say it in the Greek, which, interestingly enough, is the same word used for the two witnesses in Revelation 11. Or 12. It's 11. No, it's 11. So this idea of there being two human beings that come down out of heaven and stand out front of Jerusalem and testify, no bueno. Because Jesus himself said, these are my lampstands. So this is testimony of the church. So it's another picture of this. All right, and it's the exact same word used there. So, to your question, um, Bob, I, I agree. It probably it would be very cool if you had seven times seven equal forty nine, which would be a really cool way of of understanding perfection squared. However, we're not given that in the scriptures. There's nothing to indicate that that's the case. As a matter of fact, more indication is is that these are single lamps lit by the fullness of the seven. Lights of the Spirit or lamps of the Spirit that John refers to earlier. So the idea is that seven lamps of the Spirit who stand before the throne room, that John sees light each one. And it's very important that we make this distinction. And I said it last yesterday. There's a, it's very important, or the last time we met, it's very important that we understand that there's a distinction between the Holy Spirit or the light or the actual light of the lampstand and the lampstand itself. Okay, now, and this is important because if you go back to Zechariah, how many of you know where that passage is, Zechariah? Um, what do you see, Zechariah? see, I think it's four. I want to say it's four. It's either four or two. But this is, this is basically, uh, this passage in Zechariah is what John sees, and, and yeah, it is four. Um, I'll read it real quick. And the angel who talked with me, Again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of a sleep, and he said to me, "What do you see?" And I said, uh, "And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips e- uh, on each of the lamps that are on the top of it, and there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left." And I said to the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel uh, who talked to me answered and said, do you not know what these are? This is an interesting way to answer this question. And he said, no, my Lord. And then the angel said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now, he didn't give a breakdown of each thing there, but what he did was he was saying that it's... The light of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that empowers. And then when we go on later, we find that they overcame him by what the word the, the blood of the Lamb. So the idea is, is that the lampstands are bare by the, by the combination of the the light of the Holy Spirit. The church is able to illuminate Jesus Christ. So when Jesus says, if you don't shape up later on, I'll come and remove your lampstand, what he's saying is, I'm going to, I, your witness is no more. Okay? So basically the flame that's on your lampstand will be diminished. It'll be removed. You may continue to be a church, but you have no witness because you have no power. Because it is not by your might, not by your power, but by the spirit, which is the fire on the lampstand or the lamp itself, okay? It is by the lamp. The lampstand without lamps here doesn't illuminate anything. It's just a pretty piece of furniture, right? But once it's lit, all that's in the house is illuminated, right, and so, what is going on here? So, when Jesus says, "I'm going to come and take your lampstand," what happens if, if that's a real picture? What happens in the heavenlies if one of the lamps is gone? And we're dealing with a picture of what? We have an incomplete church, so that can't be. So, what Jesus is saying is is that this is going to remain forever. This vision is going to remain forever. There is seven churches. The Son of Man stands forever within the completed church. There will be a whole church. And when we get to the, the ceiling of the 144,000, you'll understand why that means. That means that none that you give me, Lord, can be taken out of my hand. Okay? So this will remain. So I don't want you to get this idea that up in heaven there's this idea that somebody's standing off to the side waiting for Jesus to go, take that one away. Okay? But on earth, it's a different story. Because as we'll see, Ephesus actually ceased to become a church several, months, several years after the uh, exhortation was given. So there on earth, their witness was removed because they were compromised. The vision, though, was unaffected. That's what we have to keep in mind. God will, through Jesus Christ, secure by sealing all of those He has chosen. Okay, so that's that's an. Now that I ramble on about that for a long time, um, anybody have questions on that? Everybody, good. All right. Now, as we said. Uh, Uh, The seven here represent the the church in its fullness or in its uh, completeness, and we've talked about Zechariah 4, 2, and 10, Um, and we've talked about the distinguishment. I'm I'm catching up with myself from last week. The Holy Spirit empowers the church rightly. It's no accident. Okay, so here's... Let me try and put this into words. Is it okay if I do this? Okay. Um, Now, we understand that the seven churches listed in two and three are individual churches. They are physically individual churches that were in um, Asia Minor, or Asia at the time, right? And it was a circular, if any of you guys have done any geography, uh, the idea is, is that it was like Ephesus, I don't remember them in order, um, and they kind of formed this circle, right? So it would have been very easy for one individual to go here and then do a circle like this. So um, although they are seven churches individually and are written to seven churches what that actually means is, is that they're written to the church. Therefore, whatever's written to the seven churches has to be applicable to every Christian throughout history, throughout redemptive history. It has to, it, that, that has to be that way. Now, the interesting thing is, is that although the individual churches through uh, in 2 and 3 are listed individually after the end of chapter 3, there is no mention of any individual church after that point, it always has to do with the church, the people of God, the true Israel. So the idea is, is that in two and two and three, there's seven churches listed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven. That in are the whole church throughout the ages and that theme right here is now taken and is the is the is who is addressed now from from this point on through the rest of the book of revelation the idea of an individual church is never mentioned again after chapter 3 okay so these individual churches disappear from the narrative and are no longer referenced. Um, the lamp stands in John's vision, then, according to Revelation 1:20, are the seven churches. The first being the heavenly representation uh, and perfected fullness of the earthly church. Okay, so what John is seeing is John is seeing what will be, what is perfected in heaven, and that's important when you understand what the stars represent. And I'll talk a little bit because Rick said something that is, in fact true, and I'm going to tell you why it's true here in a second. Yeah. <laughs> no. The reason I said it that way is, is because what he talked about is a very controversial idea. And if you read, uh, so just so you guys know, I'm reading 11 commentaries at the same time. So, on, on this. And the reason that I am is because I want to get a cross-section of what different people are saying. All right? So, it's important. So, there is so many ideas on what the seven stars are. So many ideas. But if you think about what is being said, we're going to get to it in a second. What Rick said is, is that they are the churches. So you have the lampstands that are the representative of the churches, and you have the stars that are the represent uh, are representative of the churches. That is true. But it's the context of each that we have to get in our heads. Okay? A lot of people say it's the angels. Well, it's, why would he be addressing angels that are not fallen, and yet they allow the Nicolation? Or they... Yeah. So yeah, so it's, and that's protection and authority. So there's a lot to that statement, and we'll get to it in a minute. The reason that I'm going to go over this is because in this day and age, the idea of Revelation is intended to be an encouragement to us to persevere. And there's a lot in the first chapter, and there's a lot that that is springboarding in, and there's a lot of things in the Old Testament and that follow after that have to do with what the churches are about. And I'm taking the time here because the churches are central To the book of Revelation. The church is central. It is God's testimony in the world and him building his church in the middle of tribulation. And the more that I read, the more times that I go through Revelation, I'm gonna say this and I I don't I, I probably get in trouble for it, and that's okay. The more that I read Revelation from this particular viewpoint, the more that I understand that dispensationalism is an aberration. It is an absolute, it it absolutely destroys one of the most important books in the Bible and completely takes it out of your hands as being applicable right now. We sit back and we don't read the book of Revelation because it's some future event that we're all looking forward to and we're trying to apply Matthew 24 to it and figure out the signs so that we know when we get to move into the book of Revelation, which we really don't get to move into because we're going to be raptured out anyway. And I'm like, do you not understand that the whole... And and you don't. Well, not you, but most people don't because of the way they're taught. that the book of Revelation is designed to equip the church and encourage her during the interadvental church age and without it your effectiveness is greatly diminished your encouragement is greatly diminished and if you can't read revelation with an understanding that this is what's going on in the world since Jesus was resurrected and that everything that's in there is common to the condition of the church throughout the church age then you are greatly handicapped in your ability to function I'm just saying that so I think that dispensational the dispensational crucifixion of the book of revelation is a scourge on Christendom I'll just say that right out anybody who wants to argue with me about it later you're welcome to but I think it emasculates the church it takes away from them one of the most beautiful books of Christ crushing the serpent's head through his church on the earth. And we just put it off as being an ununderstandable book. It's sad. Okay, now that I've uh, said that. Um, Church reveals Jesus Christ and thereby is bear witness to him. Um, the word used for lampstand in the passage is Luke and the, the same word uh, for lampstand is used of the two witnesses. We've already talked about that. I jumped all ahead of, over here, so let me catch up with myself. Um, okay, so we said that this church is a continuation of the true Israel and therefore likewise, uh, likewise to draw its power from the seven lamps, which, as we have said, represents the Holy Spirit's illumination. Within the new temple of God, the shifts from the one lampstand in Zechariah to the seven lampstands here in Revelation not only stresses the fullness of God's people in the true Israel. Uh, in that true Israel is no longer limited to one nation, but encompasses all of God's people. Now, I want to talk to you about Christ among the lampstands because this is this is where we draw a lot of our encouragement. And we'll talk about the seven stars, and we'll talk about these things because all of these are are really, really strong pictures, and I wanted to go back and do this because I, I just feel like in this this age, the church needs encouragement to know that Jesus is in control, and when he opens the seals, he opens the seals. Do you understand that? It's him that opens the seals. It is by his sovereign act that he opens the seals. So he understands what's already in the scroll. And he opens the seals, and what, he, what is unleashed by the seals, what is unleashed by the trumpets, what is in, unleashed by the bowls is within the sovereign dictates of the Most High God. It's not like God has this bowl somewhere in the back room, and he sends an angel to go get it, and he and Jesus are sitting there watching to see what happens, and this angel throws it out, and then we go, oh, that was cool. No. No. Everything is under the sovereign control of man. What you see going on in the world right now is under the sovereign control of God. Not only is it under his control, it has been opened by him. That's important. When we sing that song, is he worthy to open the scroll? What does that mean? I'm going to jump ahead here because I think this is so powerful. What does what Re- Revelation 5 talk about? And I stood... And an angel came out and said, who is able to open the scroll? And nobody was found in heaven, earth, or under the earth who was worthy to open the scroll. And I wept. And one of the angels came to me and said, don't weep anymore. And I'm paraphrasing. So, For look, one like the, for look, what is it? The lamb that was slain is worthy. Do you know what that's a picture of? So when we read sing that song from now on, do you know what that's a picture of? When nobody is found in heaven and earth and under the earth who is worthy simply that's pre-crucifixion. Because it is only by the crucifixion and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ can the scroll be opened. Because the scroll is the gospel. The scroll is God's redemptive plan for his church. So who was worthy to open the scroll? Nobody was found because the lamb had not been slain yet. And then the angel said, look, one like the lamb who was slain is now worthy. So by his crucifixion and by his resurrection and his redemptive work on the earth, Jesus ascended now as the lamb who was slain, the lion of Judah, takes the scroll and he opens it and he commences... The plan of redemption. And we don't understand that half of, that. the bulk of redemption has to do with judgment. That Jesus brings judgment to a sin-filled, fallen world. And he sets it aright. That's redemption. What Je- and that's what happens in the churches. Jesus steps into the churches and he says, this is not right with you. I like this about you. I'm happy about this. You've done this. You've held to this. But I I have this against you. Why? Because both of those are are distinctly part of the gospel. Yes, it's love and redemption and restoration and all the things that make us feel really good. But it is also judgment. Right? I have this against you. You've lost your first love. I have this against you. You're lukewarm, and you're making me nauseous. I have this against you. You have allowed the spirit of Jezebel into your ranks. I have this against you that you have allowed the the comforts and the the the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for the hedonism of the world to come in among you. You've compromised with the world. You've allowed this to come on. Purge this from your midst, or else I will come and do it for you. And then he always closes with this statement. To he who overcomes. Right? Yeah, for that, that means that it's for the church for all time. And so what we we have to understand is is that this, this, this idea of judgment, that's what's going on here in the church. Jesus is judging. He's bringing redemption to his church. He's redeeming his church. How is he doing that? By love and by judgment. By love and by judgment. What does the scripture say? Judgment begins where? With the house of God. So, redemption story. So, when we say, is he worthy? He is worthy to open the scroll. Wow. What is the scroll? The plan of redemption. He's worthy. Why? Because he gave his life to be able to open the scroll. Not, well, yeah. Okay? Does that make sense? So, when Jesus is among the lampstands, he is bringing redemption to his church. He's redeeming his church, and he's doing that through love and judgment. What does Hebrews say? He disciplines those he loves, right? I think it actually says that in Revelation as well. Okay? So what do we see then? We see Christ in the middle of the lampstands and, you have, you know, <laughs> right, lightning eyes. And he's wearing a robe, and it goes all the way down, and it's got a gold sash here, and he's got these feet like bronze, right? And he's got a sword that comes out of his mouth. (laughs) That's my stick, man. The eyes like flame describes Christ in his role of judgment. Jesus' constant presence with the church means that he always knows the true spiritual condition of each of us. Let me just say this. One of the things that I think we've lost in Western Christianity is the idea of holiness. We've become a church of permissiveness. We stand on the side of grace and say, oh, it's okay. It's all right. This picture says it's not says that the lord looks and he is able to discern with his eyes of judgment what really goes on in your life nothing is hidden from the face of the lord so he know this that he always stands in among his bride and he looks and he's always aware of what's going on with each of us and the 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 encouragement is is that he knows more about you than you know about yourself And so a lot of the times we go, I can't do this. I'm such a wretch. And yet Jesus says, but I've redeemed you. Right? So, uh, feet like burnished bronze. What does bronze speak of? Remember when you come into the, 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 um, the holy place in the temple, you have to pass what? The bronze altar and the bronze laver. What does bronze represent? judgment. So Jesus has feet of judgment. He sees, has eyes that see everything that's going on. He has discerning eyes, and he has feet that are judgment. There's that scripture that he will tread out the, ra- the, the grapes of wrath, right? So his feet are of burnished bronze, which uh, continuously work, to, um, um, which has to do with moral purity, and he's continually walking among his among his church, bringing that about. Um, he holds in his hands seven stars. I forgot his hand. Okay, so he's holding in his hand seven stars. Okay? Now, these are identified as the angels of the churches in Revelation one twenty. Okay? So, there's so much going on about what this means. The word is angelos. And it can mean messenger, but it can mean a lot of things. It could mean a heavenly being. But in this particular instance, it has a very, very unique connotation. It can't mean angels because it's talking about, in many instances, a fallen, compromised condition. So unless these angels are fallen and compromised, that's a, that makes for a very, very bizarre dialogue what the church is so if if the if if the stars represent angels and he says to the angel of i have this against you then what he's saying to an angel is is that you've allowed this to go on that's weird Okay, so that's why most people don't hold to this as being heavenly divine angels. The other option is, is that they're messengers or an earthly, uh, a singular guy who is going to run this circuit. But there, that also constitutes a problem because Jesus refers to each one individually. To the messenger of. To the messenger of. Or they're elders or Pastors. Let me just say this to you right now. I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. That's a scary, 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 scary place. There's security there, but... So what most people have fallen to is, is that this is the... The seven lampstands are the earthly representation of a church in compromise... And the seven stars are the heavenly representation of the fullness of the church and its perfection. So do you guys under do you guys remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter, ooh, I think it's two? That he has lifted us up and set us in Christ Jesus now in what? Heavenly places. So we are right now in Christ Jesus in a heavenly place. So We, in effect, live as a citizen of a heavenly realm, but we have an earthly existence. In the same way, the church has a heavenly reality, but an earthly existence. And that's what this picture is here. And that's a beautiful picture, because what is being said here is that in my right hand, I hold the church, and none that this goes back to the priestly prayer in John, none that the father has given me can be taken out of my hand. so this hand here is very significant that we we keep in mind that what Jesus is saying here is that the this is the actual representation of what's uh, uh, the, 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 the spiritual representation, the fullness of what the churches are going to become. It's the heavenly representation of an earthly church. So you have a compromised church in the world, but you have a heavenly fulfillment in Jesus' right hand. Make sense? I run off and leave you guys in the dust. It's a place of security. It's a place of great comfort. So, what does the sharp, two-edged sword represent? So we see it again. Uh, we see it in pro- the prophecies of Isaiah eleven four and forty nine two, both of which speak of Christ in His role as Judge. In John's vision, Christ is also revealed as Judge of both the disobedient in the church 2, six, and in the world nineteen fifteen. So he says, and I will come with the sword of my mouth and judge, right? So the sword of his mouth is discerns, it discerns, it makes a distinction between. So, okay, yeah, I, I yeah, yes, yes. So this is a, an actual picture, and this is why I'm going to take the time to do this, because this actually goes back to 1 Samuel. This picture of Jesus among the lampstands with a sharp two-edged sword come, coming from, proceeding from his mouth is an actual picture of what Israel demanded of a king in 1 Samuel. And what did they demand? They said this. When, they said, when, when Samuel was saying, look, you have God as your king, they said, no. But there shall be a king over us that we also may be like the other nations, that our king may, and here's the key, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight. Now, although Saul failed in both of those, there was one raised up who actually did the second who had a son who actually did the first. Anybody know who I'm referring to? David and Solomon. And what, did, what was the prophecy said of David? You will always have a man on the throne eternally. So what's, what is said here, even in rebellion, is a prophetic statement about what Jesus is among the churches. He is the judge and he is the warrior for the church. He fights on our behalf, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. So he is both warrior and judge. And that goes back to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8, 19-20. All right, and we've talked about this too. Those who overconquer, uh, to those who overcome every message of the church that we get to will, uh, has to do with uh, persevering and enduring. And I was thinking about this today. When we talk about vanquishing Satan or overcoming Satan, what do we usually have this picture of? And we used to do this in the vineyard all the time. You ever heard people say, I bind you in the name of Jesus? You ever heard that stuff? Or I'll shout the devil down or get out of here, Lucifer, or all of this stuff that we like to try and do. So we always conjure up this picture of us going toe-to-toe with Lucifer. I got the Spirit of God in me. I'm going to go at it. Let me just encourage you, don't do that. (laughs) Because you'll lose. Because it's not in your own spirit. And the way you fight the enemy according to Revelation is not by going toe to toe with him. It's not by all of these weird spiritual warfare images that we've conjured up. Jesus says the way to to overcome the enemy over and over again, and he says it to every church. What's the word? How do we overcome the enemy? One word. begins with a P. Persevere. Perse... Is that an A? Persevere. He who perseveres to the end shall be saved. Not he who is a best fighter. Not he who can bind Satan. Not he who can go toe-to-toe with the enemy. It is he who in the face of all opposition maintains his witness to who Jesus Christ is by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the word of their mouth. That's how you overcome the enemy. You stand your ground. You maintain your light. You reflect Jesus in every situation. That's overcoming the enemy. That's the fight that we're called to go through. So when the systems of the beast, which we're all right in the middle of right here, push in on you, tempt you, wouldn't it just be easier if you just kind of gave in a little bit here? Because this war is wearisome. Jesus will be okay with it. He's full of grace and mercy. Just give a little bit. Right? Wouldn't it be easy just to sit down for a while and take a breather? That's the compromise of the enemy. That's what he says. He says, yeah, just take a, take a break. You just, nobody's going to know it's all right. It's not... overcoming things in our own spirit it's persevering through the power of jesus christ and that's the message to every church he who overcomes will be saved he who overcomes that's the war that you're confronted with is to persevere is to maintain your testimony is to maintain being a light is to keep your saltiness okay so that's the message to the church uh, and they overcame him with the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That's what uh, is said. So the last thing I'm going to end on, I've got to really go through this fast, is mystery. The mystery of the gospel. Who knows what the mystery is? And, and this is spoken of. And before we jump into the churches, there is a mystery. Uh, John says, and this is the mystery. If you go to Revelation chapter. Uh, it says, for, um, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, uh, the, the seven golden lampstands are the church and the seven stars are, are the angels of the churches. So he calls it a mystery. And the mystery is, is that, is simply this. What is the mystery of the gospel? Christ in you, the hope of glory. But what does that mean? That what, what was the mystery? What, what could not the Jews get over? that he was crucified right to them he lost he's not conquering nothing he's dead but the mystery is is that by his death and by his crucifixion he won that is so contrary to the world's understanding The mystery of the first vision is that Christ rules now in the midst of a weak and poor church. By the world's standards, we're insignificant. By the world's standards, we're poor. By the world's standards, we're weak. We're compromised. We're a mess. But the mystery of Jesus in the lampstands is that it is from that very place that he reigns and rules. That's the mystery that John is talking about. Jesus in the lampstands, Jesus standing in the midst of a compromised church, rules and reigns from that position. So what we have to do is begin to read Revelation from that point on, understanding that Jesus is ruling on the earth through the church, his body on the earth, he is the head in heaven. We are the church on the earth. And he's ruling from heaven through us in the earth, a weak and compromised church. That is the mystery. That's a mystery. It's the same mystery of Christ on the cross. Crucified, dead. He's dead. That doesn't make any sense. How did he win? The church looks at, uh, The world looks at the church and they go, insignificant, poor, weak. I don't get it. And yet Christ reigns from that position. So that's the mystery that we're going to see. Okay? I got to stop. Any questions? All right. Father, we are grateful that you stand in our midst this morning. That in you we find the hope of glory. That in you we have overcome. It is by your light that we reflect who Jesus is. Help us, Father, this morning to join with the heavenly chorus in worship of who you are and to draw encouragement from the fact that you've already won and that it is not by our own strength, but it is by the blood of the Lamb by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, that we persevere. In Jesus' name, amen.